0: In recent weeks we've been actually in the sermon series called The Kingdom of God and one of the things we've been exploring is this is what Christians believe about this idea of the kingdom of God. It's a metaphor that's used about really when when we talk about kingdom I know that might be archaic sounding for some of you but really what it means is that Jesus is our king and what does it mean for Jesus to be the king instead of CNN or Fox News or Drudge Report or whatever it might be that might be your source or our source or our city source for who the king is. Maybe it's the government. Maybe, maybe it's military might. Maybe it's all of these different kinds of kings that the world might offer. Maybe it's your education. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's the New York Mets. Whatever it might be, uh, all the things that, that might kind of offer themselves as being kings, what we've been talking about in this idea of the kingdom of God is really that we are a people who orient our lives around a king named Jesus. And what does this kingdom of God look like? And really, today's passage. I know that there's a lot of religious jargon that's used in this passage because when we talk about kingdom of God, you're going to hear about demon possession. You're going to hear about Satan and demons and things like that. If you're not a Christian here, just a quick clue into what Christians believe: we believe that there is a material world, but it's actually interconnected with the supernatural world. And the supernatural world that connects with the material world, it happens in ways that might be invisible to us. And if you might be someone who's like, I'm purely rational and I just think about the material universe, well. Uh, the rest of the world in many places around the world they actually take it as a given that the supernatural realm exists now I, that's not an argument for why you should believe it too that's simply an explanation of many people around the world believe that there's just there's this interconnectedness of the material and the immaterial and when we as Christians talk about things like demons and Satan uh, and things like that and the Holy Spirit we're talking about a supernatural uh, reality that we believe exists now here's the thing here's what I I think we can agree with that everything that's happening in Afghanistan, that's what's happened with racial injustice in our country, not only in the recent past, but for centuries, Uh, what the, the rumors of wars and the wars that have occurred, the strident kind of discourse and belief and fighting that's happened around the world wouldn't you and i we'd all kind of admit that no matter how much we might progress as a community as a society as a world as a people who might have the best education somehow there are things that seem almost demonic or immaterial that has continued to cause so much strife division and bloodshed you don't even have to be a christian to admit yeah there's something in the air That seems kind of crazy related to the strident world that we live in. Now, here's what Christians believe. We believe that that world is this immaterial world. And that's where things like demons come into play. And so we come to this passage where as we talk about the kingdom of God, what we're going to see is Jesus actually comes and it starts out with a teaching about Jesus. Why is he the rightful king? Why is he someone that can speak into the reality of the material world? and he has authority to be that king. But then he starts talking about a very important teaching and that teaching kind of propels us into this idea of the unforgivable sin. Now, some of you, maybe when you hear that phrase, or even as you see the title, the unforgivable sin, some of you have walked in and been like, I wish I didn't come today because there's a lot of things that I think have been unforgivable in my own life and I wonder if I've committed that. Well, I hope that you can lean in to this teaching to hear what is this unforgivable sin and what does it mean when it comes and how does this unforgivable sin actually describe what the kingdom of God is like? But before we get there, let's start with this idea of the kingdom of God, because this is how the passage begins. Jesus, they brought him a demon-possessed man. Now, uh, in today's world, there's mental illness. We also, we believe in mental illness, chemical imbalances, but we also believe that there is this supernatural realm where demons can possess in different ways. And they brought to him a demon-possessed man, so he's deeply troubled, if you can imagine. Someone who's deeply troubled, who was also blind and mute. In other words, his physical infirmities were so clear. He's blind and he's mute. Now look at what happens to Jesus. It says, and Jesus healed him, because that's what Jesus does. He basically signifies that he's got authority over the immaterial world as well as authority in the material world. Over our physical bodies, he's got that much authority because he is the rightful king. Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Now, what is that phrase, son of David? The son of David is basically this phrase that the Jewish people thought uh, the Messiah would come through the line of David. And so when they're talking about the son of David, a Messiah was someone who was going to deliver the people of Israel who had been historically oppressed. And so they were longing for someone to come and to deliver them. And so now they're asking this question, oh snap, this guy has authority over the physical world as well as the supernatural world. This is who this Jesus is? It, could this be the son of David? Because they're asking this question. Could this be that very person who's the king over the, the supernatural as well as the natural world? And Jesus is answering that question. But notice, notice the reaction of how people react uh, to, to this healing. Check out what it says. It says, but when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebul. Can I hear you say Beelzebul? Beelzebul. Beelzebul basically is a word that literally means Lord of the Flies. Baal or Baal was kind of this word that was used to describe the gods of the ancient Near East. And so when he says Beelzebul, he's talking about Lord of the Flies. But he actually interprets this and he says, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Uh, So in other words, the Pharisees who are the teachers of the law, in other words, they're the religious experts. All of a sudden now they come with this teaching and they're basically like, oh, he's doing this by some demonic power. Now, here's where Jesus basically look at what it says. It says, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. So in other words, they're accusing him of being Satan when he's the one who's actually healed the physical as well as the demon possessed. So Jesus is basically saying, how does this make sense? Satan is not gonna drive out Satan. And Satan basically means adversary. How can this kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the spirit of God, in other words, if this is what God authors, that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Do you see what Jesus is basically saying? Like, if I'm the one who's going to cast out demons, heal the sick and the lame, you should know that I am the rightful king because the kingdom of God is here and it's available to you and to me in the physical world and in the super and in the uh, immaterial world. So Jesus is basically saying, I mean, he's basically answering the question with logic. He's basically saying, how can Satan drive out Satan? That can't be done. But. Your eyes and your ears and your hands and your senses can tell the story of just the authority that I have, not only over the demon-possessed, but also over those who are blind and mute and who are hurting. And here's what I'm gonna show you. I'm gonna show you that I'm the rightful king by healing this man. And when you see miracles like this, miracles of the sins of the world being made right, I want you to know that I am the rightful king. Now, here's what Jesus does though. This is where he launches into this really dramatic and difficult teaching. Check out what he says. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven. So when he talks about son of man, he's referring to himself even. He's like, you can talk smack to me all day, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Now, this is an incredibly daunting teaching because, I mean, when we hear this, when we talk about, whoa, 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 Jesus, you're saying that there's something that if I were to say something that it will not be forgiven. And this is where we get that phrase, the unforgivable sin. Now, he clearly talks about what is the unforgivable sin. It's not to blaspheme Jesus. In other words, you could talk all sorts of smack about Jesus, but it's actually blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And it begs the question then, if that's the unforgivable sin, what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Now, again, this might be some religious word and language for some of you. The idea of blaspheming is to basically slander. And in those days, it was basically a way of assigning or a disposition of the heart towards someone or to some divine figure claiming something. So to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, then Jesus is actually distinguishing. You can blaspheme me all day but you can't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Now here's what Christians believe about who God is. Now again, I know there's a lot of background for those of you who aren't religious here. Basically, here's what Christians believe, that there's a Godhead. God is one, but God is three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. When we talk about Spirit, Spirit is the same word for wind or breath. So holy means set apart. So when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about the third person as part of the Godhead, Who has a different function, but is part of the same Godhead as Jesus, the son of man. Now, Jesus is basically signaling that he's saying when you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you're talking about blaspheming God himself in a very particular function and role that he takes on. So I think it begs the question then, what is it that the Holy Spirit does that is different or unique to what Jesus does? Well, if you actually look in John chapter 16, Jesus, before he goes, before he goes to his death and resurrection, he gives his teaching to his disciples about the Holy Spirit. Now, check out what he writes or what he says in John chapter 16. He says, but very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Unless I go away, the advocate, which is another word for the Spirit, the advocate, which is what the Holy Spirit is known as, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, this is what the Holy Spirit will do. He will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the Prince of this world now stands condemned. In other words, this is what the Spirit will do. The Spirit will reveal to us, will reveal to human beings, that we need God, that we need Jesus, that we need His forgiveness. This is what the Spirit does. He reveals that we are sinners, that we are imperfect human beings who make mistakes, that we are people who are not gods ourselves. And so what the spirit does is it reveals sin and righteousness and judgment. It reveals to every single one of us then. The spirit is what reveals to us that we need God. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, uh, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he uh, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. So do you see what the Spirit does then? The unique function when Jesus is talking about the Spirit. This is what he says the Spirit does. See, what the Spirit does is it illuminates our hearts so that we recognize that we are sinful human beings who need God. We are imperfect, fragile, broken human beings. And we are sinful and we need God. And the Spirit is the one that guides us into all truth. In other words, the Spirit is the one who reveals to us who Jesus is is now here's what this means then to blaspheme the Holy Spirit to go against the Spirit and the work of the Spirit is essentially to reject our need for God so when he says listen there's one sin that will not be forgiven it's this sin it's the sin where we become so self-righteous so self-serving that we basically say I don't need God I can do this on my own And that's what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, to reject our need for God. In other words, if you don't want forgiveness from God, you won't be forgiven. But... Now, here's the explosive part of this passage, though, right? Because, I mean, let's read that passage again. If you read it, most of us, we immediately jump to this phrase. Uh, It's the phrase, and so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. But blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. I mean, we immediately jump to that, don't we? But check out this explosive phrase right before it. (laughs) Look at what it says. It says, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. Now, if if we jump so quickly to the, listen, this is what won't be forgiven, we've actually missed the most explosive phrase in this teaching. Here's what's so startling is Jesus basically says, you see, in the kingdom where I am king, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. So what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to be unforgivable? It's when you say, I don't want forgiveness. I don't need God. But here's what Jesus basically said right before that. He says, but if you do admit your need, if you do admit that you need God, it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what sins you've committed. It doesn't matter how far you might feel from God. If you want forgiveness, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. Now, in the ancient world, the belief around the gods was basically the people that the gods were pleased with were the rich, were the powerful, were the beautiful. The the people who the gods were pleased with were the ones who had great health, in the ancient world that was the belief about who was like i mentioned a couple weeks ago blessed but isn't that the same today when we think about when we think about who is blessed and maybe who the gods might be pleased with we think about the rich the beautiful the strong the mighty the healthy the ones where their kids never misbehave you know like this is who we think is loved by the gods And yet, you see, Jesus is flipping things upside down in his kingdom, where he's basically saying, hey, this is what I want you to know. No matter your station in life, the prisoners, the outcasts, the addicted, no matter your station in life, don't you see, if you want forgiveness, if you want God, if you simply say, I need God, that's all it takes. If you just say, I need God, you can be forgiven, you can be part of this kingdom. In fact, you are welcome as sons and daughters. All you need is need. You know what's so interesting is when, when we talk about this idea of the unforgivable sin, most of us probably jump to, you know what's, unfor- oh yeah, the unforgivable sin, it's probably not me because I'm better than those people. And who are in the camp of those people? It's usually the prisoners, the outcasts, uh, my mother-in-law, no, I'm just kidding, not my mother-in-law, I love my mother-in-law. No, it's like, it's, it's all those people, but isn't that what we do? We think that those people out there have committed the unforgivable sin. Surely not I, surely not I who have attended church on a Sunday in the middle of a st- Storm. You know, what's interesting is that keep in mind the teaching that Jesus is giving on the unforgivable sin. So he's giving this teaching about like, hey, hey you're so close. You're so close to missing out on the heart of this, new, this king, this kingdom of God. You're so close on missing out what this kingdom of God is all about. And who's he giving that teaching to? Is he giving it to the sinners of community? He's giving it to the Pharisees, to the religious people, to the religious teachers. Why? Why? It's because maybe it's the religious people who can often become so self-righteous, so self-reliant on what I know, on how good I am, Maybe it's those people who are often the people who say, actually, I don't need God. I'm a pretty good person by myself. I mean, do you see how Jesus is flipping things topsy-turvy in his kingdom? And he's essentially saying in the most radically inclusive, gracious invitation to all of us. Whether you're religious or you're not, whether you've walked into a room, whatever you've come here with today, every sin and slander will be forgiven if you want it. And if you don't, then you won't. And the question for you and for me is, do we want it? Do we, want, do we confess our need for Jesus? Do we confess that, yes, we need Jesus? God. You know, as I was thinking about this idea of every sin, I was thinking, what about the sins where I cannot forgive myself? Uh, Last week I mentioned I'm a crazy people pleaser and I tend to berate myself when I disappoint other people or when I disappoint other or disappoint myself. And I'll often like hold these things inside. Uh, there will be these random moments where I'm walking down the street, and uh, I'm walking down the street with Tina and our family, and then all of a sudden, as we're walking, I'll be like, ah! Oh! And then Tina will be like, what? And I'll be like, oh, in high school, I said this to this one person. I kept <laughs> like, and she's like, wow, like that was like more than 25 years ago, you know? And I'm like, ah, oh, but still, ah! Oh. Because sometimes it's just so hard for me to forgive myself. You know what's so explosive about this? Every sin and slander, if we want forgiveness, we'll be free. Even the sins where we can't forgive ourselves. Maybe it's the sins where you maybe feel like it's so hard to forgive yourself over the way that you treated someone that you love. I know recently it's so hard. Whenever, sometimes I lose my cool or my patience with my children and I'm like, oh, like, can, I, can I ever be forgiven? And there's these moments in which I, I find myself in this cycle of self-condemnation and hurt. And yet, here's what Jesus says, every sin and slander will be forgiven. If you want forgiveness, you can, forgive, you can be forgiven. Well, not, What about, not only the sins where I can't forgive myself, what about the sins where I can't forgive other people? Like each one of us, by virtue of being human beings, we've been hurt, betrayed by people. Maybe it's by people that we thought were supposed to love us deeply. I know that for most of my life, that uh, person uh, is my father. And some of the hurt that I experienced uh, growing up with my three brothers and my mom and just the violent household we grew up in. And for years, it was just so hard to ever think about God loving and forgiving my dad. And for me personally, there's no way that I could ever bring myself to, to think of forgiving him. And yet... Despite my own human frailty and bitterness and brokenness. I mean, here's what's so explosive about this statement. Every sin and slander will be forgiven. That if my dad wants forgiveness, he'll be forgiven. Like, this is so crazy. Now, do you see how this goes against all the modern and ancient sensibilities of who is acceptable before God? In fact, each one of us should probably be almost appalled by this statement. Wait a minute, God, it shouldn't be like that. There are some people who don't deserve your forgiveness. And yet, Jesus gives this statement. If anyone wants forgiveness, I will forgive them. What about not only the sins where I can't forgive other people, what about the sins that the world will not forgive? I mean, just think about that. Just think about some of the greatest atrocities in the world. The people and the movements that have inflicted pain and death and suffering. Now, I know that each one of us should probably revolt at that idea. Like, wait a minute, God, there's some... No, 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 There are some people that are beyond your forgiveness. There's no way. No way. You know, what's so crazy, though, is... Jesus says every every sin and slander will be forgiven. That if someone wants forgiveness that if sin runs so deep, my grace runs deeper still. No, that, that just seems ridiculous. And yet, the earliest Christians knew this. And that's why when they were talking about this kingdom, about what God is like and the kingdom of God that's at hand, it's not a kingdom that seeks to divide and conquer and be better than. It's actually a kingdom where... In 1 John, it says this if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I mean, isn't this beautiful? See, the reorientation of the kingdom of God is this king is a king who basically says whatever your station in life, whatever your race, whatever your financial kind of situation, whatever you've been through, whatever past you carry, whatever feelings of shame or unworthiness that you might think you have before the God of heaven and earth, I just want you to know, if you just confess your need, then let's have a party. I mean, do you see how explosive this is? All you need is need. Tim Keller says this, With the gospel, all you need is need. The problem is most of us don't have it. And I would honestly say that most of us don't have need, especially here in Manhattan, because in Manhattan we are the best, the brightest, the most well-educated, the highest earning potential. We are smart. We are good-looking. We've got it all because we are here in the greatest city in the world. And so as a result, of course, we don't need God. We have our smarts, we have our intellect, we have our minds, we have, we've got money, we've got all these things that continue to teach us that we don't need God. And yet, do you see why the most beautiful, expansive message of the gospel, of the kingdom of God is like, hey, you're welcome here. The one thing you need is need, is to simply say, Yeah. I need you and if you don't want to confess your need then he won't forgive you then it's okay that's what blaspheming the holy spirit is is to say god i don't need you in my life and so here's the invitation for you and for me today What if today, despite your past, despite the ways in which you might yourself feel unacceptable to God, despite the mistakes you've made in your relationships, despite whatever you might be carrying where you think yourself, yeah, God, God doesn't, God is is someone who's far from me, would never want anything to do with me. This religion thing, someone just dragged me here and there's no way that God would ever kind of accept someone like me. Well, here's what I want you to know. Welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. All you need is need. All you need is need. Because every sin and slander will be forgiven. The question for you and for me is today, do you just want to say, God, I just want to come clean before you? (laughs) I just want to Admit, I trust myself too often, I trust my intellect, I trust my career, I trust all, I Trust my money, my bank, I trust all of these things, I trust my resume, I trust the school I went to, and yet today will you just come and say, maybe I don't have it all figured out, maybe what I need today is Jesus. You know, last week, we ended with this uh, image of open hands and the way that kingdom prayer calls us to a posture of surrender. And really, surrender is this posture because this is what surrendering is, right? This is And surrender, you see the themes, they always go back to these same themes. Do I confess my need? Do I surrender before the God of heaven and earth? Do I believe that His ways are better than my... Do I believe that His love for me is real and true? And today... It's yet another invitation. When we open our hands, we're basically saying, God, I need you. God, I need you. And the task of having a relationship with God is to continually come before Him and say, God, I need you. You are God and I am not. There are so many ways in which I get in my own way. My own self-condemnation my own shame, my own doubts, my own past? What if today Jesus were to say to you, hey, every sin and slander will be forgiven. Will you just come and confess your need and receive the kind of relationship with the divine that your heart has always longed for?